Section 49 of Old Rail Fence Corners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Reed All Day. Old Rail Fence Corners. Edited by Lucy Leavenworth Wilder Morris. Minneapolis Chapter. Caroline Rogers Shepley. Mrs. O. H. Shepley. Florence Shepherd Little. Mrs. F. W. Little. Mary Sherrod Phillips. Mrs. Alonzo Phillips. Mrs. Helen Godfrey Berry. 1849. My part in the history of the Godfrey House is the first chapter. My idea of geography in 1847, at the age of eight years, was that Maine was the only state and that Bangor was not far from Boston in size and importance. Out west was a wonderland in my child mind. I did not realize when or how my father, Art Godfrey, went so far from home as to St. Anthony Falls, but I did realize his return to take my mother and us children west. My father was obliged to leave us with our relatives, Alex Gordon's family. We stayed in Belot, Wisconsin, for the winter. He, with Captain John Rollins and some others, went through on ponies, or as best they could travel. Cold weather had stopped the boats from running. That trip was one they did not forget, and often told of it. In the spring of 49, we took a stagecoach from Belot, with our baggage strapped on behind. I remember well the black murky mud we rode through, the wheels sinking into the hubs first on one side, then the other. Father met us in St. Paul, and we children at once got on the calico-covered settee of the bass house, too sleepy to eat. My next idea of being anywhere was in a room given up very kindly, by Mrs. Calvin Church to my mother, in what was called the Mess House, Main Street, Southeast. It was the most comfortable place to be had. We were hungry for mother's cooking. Our first meal was of biscuits, salt, and tea, with strawberry jam mother had found in the blue chest. This was in April. If the work had not been already begun in our house, it must have been hurried, as in May, my sister was born in the house. There was considerable concern because there was no doctor nearer than St. Paul to call on in case of need. But a few days before my sister, Harriet, was born, someone said there was an old gentleman living on the lower island, a Dr. Kingsley, so he was called in. There was no footbridge, and but one way to get to the island, that of fording the river. The house was built before the time of balloon frames. The principal workmen were Chas Massey and James Brissett, who must have worked faithfully and well. Doors and window sash were done by hand, the lumber having to be seasoned after it was hauled to the spot. I was so interested in the many kinds of planks and tools used by these carpenters, every floorboard being tongued and grooved by them. The cellar under the whole house was dug after the house was partly built. I have a faint recollection that a lime kiln was built near the old landing, and lime burnt before the walls and plastering could be done. A brick oven was built, which did good service while we lived there. When it came to the painting of the outside of the house, father and mother wondered if the natural colour of Minnesota pine was not a shade or two different from that of the old state of Maine. They were so impressed, they concluded to paint the house as near the shade of this new pine as possible, but were hardly satisfied because not a perfect imitation. My mother was favoured with much-needed help most of the time. The house was often a hospital. Two years after we built, the brother of the young woman who was helping my mother came with a bad attack of cholera. He was brought in, 
cared for, and sent away comfortable. Many families came from the Far East with sickness from the long journey, many of them cases of typhoid fever. My mother was not behind in extending a welcome and assistance to these sufferers. I would not omit my recollection of our first 4th of July. It was either in 49 or 50, and carried out with all patriotism. I went early in the morning with my new friend, Emma J. Tyler, to touch the Liberty Pole, set on the hill not far from the mills, and near where was afterward, built the Winslow Hotel. It was a genuine celebration. In my mind, somehow, like a dream of a birthday in spring, comes a faint picture of a number of pioneer mothers in my mother's partly furnished parlour. I rushed in after school and stood upon the threshold. I saw bright colours in stripes and stars of blue that they seemed to be in a quandary how to place and how many to use. Was this the first flag made in St. Anthony? Was it made in the old Godfrey house? Or was I only dreaming? Anyway, it was a real celebration that came after. The Declaration of Independence was read, I think by J.W. North, a volunteer choir of our best singers, Mrs. Caleb Dorr, Mrs. North, and others, sang the patriotic hymns. Isaac Atwater, Captain John Rollins, and others, sat upon the platform, and my father was marshal of the day. I probably took the first music lesson on the piano given to a learner in St. Anthony, my teacher being Mrs. J.W. North, living at first on Hennepin Island, in the house afterward known as the Tapper House, where Captain John Tapper lived while running the ferryboat, before the bridge was built from our side to the island. It was not a very safe or easy trip for me to skip over on the logs, but I got to be quite an expert. My piano came later than Mrs. North's, but was the first new piano brought and bargained for to be sent to St. Anthony. By this time the house was comfortably furnished. At first a few articles were brought from the slaymakers who had been one of the families who had lived in the building I have spoken of, father's shop. This family became discontented enough to return to their old home, so from them we got our large six-legged dining table, the cradle, both of black walnut, and a few other pieces of furniture. If such a thing could be done after fifty years, I could replace any piece of furniture as my mother had then. The parlour, with its warm, coloured red and green carpet, the piano in its corner, the round mahogany table of my mother's with its red and black table spread, and always the three worsted lamp mats I had made when seven years old. Mother's hair cloth rocker, the parlour stove, and the round back chairs, also in the sitting room, were mother's small, two-leaved tea table and the settee, like four chairs in a row, a stove, etc., also comfortable. We never lived in a house in Minnesota in which we felt the cold so little in winter. From an item in my old scrapbook concerning the moving of the house, it said it had three thicknesses of floorboards, and the same for the outside, so it was built for comfort. My little room over the parlour, my first own room, had in it the bureau made by my grandfather Burr. My bedstead, a posted one, was corded with bed cords, had one good straw bed and a fluffy feather bed on top of that, with patchwork quilts. In that little room, I made my beginnings. I learned to wash the floor on my knees, for I had no carpet. At the time, when the mill company's property was partly owned by a bachelor named A. W. Taylor, the other owners were very anxious to buy at his share, so were making great effort to persuade him to sell. My mother was given the money, all in gold, or probably father 
put it in her care, ready to make the payment if he came to terms, which he finally did. My knowledge of this fact came from mother being all alone at night. She told me that in one corner of the blue chest were bags of gold amounting to $10,000. Afterward, I could understand that she felt too anxious to sleep, and that in case of any foul deed, I could answer for her. In those days, however, men were honest and money plentiful. Many times has my father ridden to or from St. Paul with a sack of money in the buggy seat beside him. About this time, it was getting to be the custom in Washington and other large cities for ladies to receive gentlemen callers on New Year's Day. So the first year St. Anthony followed that custom. By Mrs. Camp's suggestions and help, I was the first to receive callers with Mrs. Camp as chaperone. I am not quite sure who were our callers. Probably Mr. Camp, T.E.B. North, J.B. Shaw, and others. Pound and fruitcake with fragrant coffee and rich cream were served. In our house was organized the first Masonic Lodge. I remember it perfectly well. My mother had arranged the house in such a perfect order, we children felt something unusual was to happen. Mother first was elected Tyler. I couldn't understand why we couldn't even peep through the keyhole. I saw Mr. John H. Stevens and Mr. Isaac Atwater pass into the parlor, where they spent the evening with my father. Mother proved a faithful Tyler, and all the satisfaction we got was that they had ridden the goat. Father had told Brother Abner wonderful stories about the country he was intending to take us to, and one was that sleds grow on trees, and he should have one when we got there. He did not forget. Maybe he was reminded that sometime before one Christmas day, Daddy brought home two strips of wood that he said could be bent into the shape he wanted it. It took some time, and he did not know whether Brother suspected what was coming until his own frame sled was brought to him, all completed but the steels. They came later. So he can claim having that first real coaster, for the other boys had only board runners or barrel staves. The mills, now burnt, knew then, with two upright saws, the people were as proud of, as they are now proud, of all the fine mills in Minneapolis. Art Godfrey had reason for feeling proud. He had the management of the building of the first mill dam across the Mississippi River, had stood waist-deep in its waters half days at a time with his men to accomplish this work. He was owner to not over one-seventh and not less than one-tenth interest in the Milco business, was agent for Franklin Steel, of whom he always spoke with the greatest respect. I can realize that he was a very busy man during the time he served there, and that he needed the rest and quiet he found afterward in his Minnehaha home. Our first nearest neighbors were Mrs. Marshall with her two sons, W.M.R. and Joseph, and her daughter, Rebecca. Their store was the first started in our neighborhood until John G. Lennon built his a little later. Mrs. Marshall impressed me when she said to my mother that if one of her sons was foolish enough to get into a fight and get whipped, she would whip him again when he came home. I thought of her in after years when I heard people speak of W.M.R. Marshall while he was governor of Minnesota. Once on our first acquaintance, my mother sent my brother, then about six years of age, to Mrs. Marshall for an article from the store. She gave it to him with the change. The child was so interested in his play with some boys, he hurried home, gave mother the package, and was hurrying off when she asked him for the change. He said he hadn't any, and from his eagerness to get away, she feared he had spent the money without leave, 
to treat the boys. I heard her say something about not letting this pass at first time. If it is an act of dishonesty, now is my time, etc. So to sift the matter to the bottom, she took the reluctant boy to Mrs. Marshall, who said, Don't you see, Mrs. Godfrey? He has done nothing wrong. He has the money. Look again. Sure enough, under the wonderful things, balls and strings in his pocket, was the money just where Mrs. Marshall had put it herself, and he was the most surprised one to see it. The tears were dried, and Mrs. Marshall had saved him from punishment, only that he had lost his noon hour for play. One last remembrance is that of the great flood which came and spoiled so much of the work done in the beginning. I have still in my mind the grandest picture of Almighty God I ever saw. Man seemed but an atom against him. When the waters rushed and roared in, their strong surges over the ledges that made the falls of St. Anthony, the long logs that had been, but a few months before, proud monarchs of the pine forests, sailed along toward this brink like sticks. Then with their long ends, balancing out over the rushing fall, would tilt over and down into the rushing, curling, foaming torrent out of sight. But little else was thought of just then, for we who were near were watching, watching the grandeur, but dreading the effect. One thing I realized that drew my attention from this mighty picture, that was the anxious face of my father. Had he not foreseen the future possibilities of this great water power? I am sure now that he had, and soon had the first stroke come and waved aside all that had been partly accomplished. A setback, because the work had been begun with rough tools and lack of material. I think he realized what might be, what has been. What we all can see now, power harnessed by inventions into monstrous manufactories, costing mints of gold, paying out mints of gold in return, costing more than half a century of time and labor. Why do I think he foresaw all this? For several reasons. At that time, he secured title to a small island outside the others, just at the brink of the falls, although by summary survey. I think it was afterward considered a part of Nicola Island, causing him to leave it, if I am right. Another reason seems indirect. It was from what he said in regard to San Pedro Harbor in his first visit to California, that Los Angeles might become a city, but not what San Pedro could be for the harbor, a nucleus or center for business for all the surrounding country. It may take years enough to see all this, to make up its half-century too, but when I see what is already the beginning, I know he was right, and knew what he was talking about. So as I now often sit and listen to the breakers of the grand old Pacific Ocean, I am given an old home feeling. I am listening, in memory, to the roar of that mighty waterfall, the Falls of St. Anthony, as they sounded fifty years ago. End of section 49